Welcome to Prajna Spark's special series, Why Nirvana Matters, where Yeshe and Zopa talk to contemporary teachers about nirvana, peace, and its relevance in our lives and practice of Buddha Dharma. We're grateful to you for sharing and reviewing our podcast as often as you can. Today, our guest is Linda Mudaro, spiritual director and lead teacher at Sati Sangha, an online meditation community that offers daily virtual meditation sittings and online retreats. Sati Sangha is a secular community of lay practitioners, not closely affiliated with a monastic or religious tradition, whose practice evolved out of insight meditation and in turn Theravada and early Buddhist thought. It's so delightful to have you on Prajna Sparks. We can't wait to share your story. Uh, that's really nice to hear. I thought I'd start with asking you to tell the listeners a little bit about your group and what you think is unique about it. Well, the nonprofit that I am the spiritual director and lead Dharma teacher for is called Sati Sangha. And Sati Sangha was born in 2016. Our community has grown up and become really close friends with another Sangha called Pine Street Sangha. And we're mostly online. And our practice that we do together is reflective meditation. And it's Mm. not a well-known practice. It's a small community. And I would say it's based mostly on Theravadan Vipassana principles and evolve out of that tradition. Can you say a little bit about reflective meditation and what role, if any, the Buddha's teachings on nirvana have in your practice and philosophical underpinnings? Yeah, the Buddhist teachings on nirvana, uh, we use the Pali word when we use it. But I have to say, we don't use it that frequently. We tend to go and lean towards the English translations of Nibbana, which in early Buddhism or kind of that that section of early Buddhist texts is translated as liberation. So it has this kind of freedom from or, you know, unbinding or releasing or relaxing of something, of situations, of, you know, difficulties, of dukkha in our lives. Very often we're talking about Nibbana, but we don't really use the word. We're trying to listen for the meditator's word that are close to that term. Are there any words that stick out for you that meditators have come up with to reflect their experience of it? Yeah, I often hear things like, oh, that didn't seem like me so much that didn't sting in the same way that it has in the past. Oh, I feel freer and more um, expansive around this situation. Those kind of terms, I would say people are very creative and they have their own language and ways to express these states and these experiences that have more of a flavor of Nibbana to them. Mm -hmm. 
Usually in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, nirvana, because we use the Sanskrit, goes hand in hand with samsara. Do you have a similar situation in your tradition? I'd say a parallel, maybe, uh, with a little bit of distinction. Our practice focuses and has a, a very firm bedrock within the teaching of conditionality. So we look at our world um, as constructed, as conditioned, and that there are many causes and conditions, many unknown to us, many known to us, but that conditionality itself is somewhat mysterious. So that is often how samsara, I hear samsara talked about, is, is this world of conditionality. We're looking at Nibbana coming from the teaching of conditionality, what we understand from conditionality, what we perceive of it, being with the conditions, embodying them, that what is learned from that is more Nibbana. So they're not like separated. And I'd say that's the same thing that I hear in, in teachings of Sara and Nibbana are not separate. So in that way, I'd say it's parallel. But maybe what we're saying is that we don't think, you know, um, there's something beyond the conditioned understanding and what comes from the understanding of the conditioned. Let me just clear up some wording. When you say conditionality, is that what sometimes is called interdependence or dependent origination or dependent arising? Just yeah. to try to get the various ways that our listeners might have heard that term. I do use that quite broadly and, and overlap those, although somebody might say that the chain of dependent arising is very different from conditionality. They're, they're different views, I think, on the same teaching. So I use conditionality to as the overview of interdependence, codependent arising. Then I'm wondering if you could explain for our listeners how you see this practice and approach with respect to either secular Buddhism that is common nowadays or heritage lineages of Buddhism from Asia? I think the direction of secularity is an interesting direction that we're all dealing with these days because it's of the modern era and, and also looking at it in comparison or in relationship to religious or religion. And our community tends to be a group of lay practitioners that don't follow monastic rules, that are really looking at how do we see the Dharma in our experience, in our meditative experience, and also in our lives. Mm. And that's how I'm using secular. And there's so many brands of secular, so that I would say our brand might be a little bit more of it's a conversation between so many different things and that somebody who might be religious or monastic might feel comfortable within our community mm. because we're not looking to make a strong distinction between the two. We're really trying to look at what a person's inner world, how it is constructed and how they act within the world an emphasis on the individual, on the individual's inner world. And that makes mm -hmm. it more secular, I think, in, in one, one sense. When you mentioned liberation, 
you mentioned it could be liberation from something. What kinds of things would you say that you focus on? For example, traditionally in Tibetan Buddhism, we also use the term liberation as one of the ways to render nirvana, but it's very much liberation from samsara, very targeted. I'd love to hear how you treat that liberation from peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very, I would say, unique to the person I'm speaking with. It Mm. comes out between us. It's related to the way a person is relating to their experience. Many times when I have people talk about their experience in meditation, they feel a loosening or a... um, dropping off or something ceasing um, and that that might be something like the anger and um, resentment and Mm -hmm. difficulty they're having in a relationship might suddenly drop off or change or mute or it could be something you know like looking at their existence difficulty with aging with sickness with death something that maybe feel more profound or less banal than, you know, than their daily activity. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of spectrum that I see of this freedom from, and we really are not so much trying to make one better than the other or more important than the other. I'm trying to listen to how the person places it within their hierarchy of experiences. I might deem something not that important, but to the meditator, it really is. And that's what I'd like to give credence to. I'd like to support that direction because I feel that's what's onward leading. It sounds like it might be a range of things from emotional concerns that are happening right then and there, or maybe historical things in their life that have been troublesome or broader relationships or things that are happening, whatever is coming up for that person in their life right then. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's what I'm trying to get at. I, I really do think it has this um, this scope and range that people surprise me, you know, with when they can be more, you know, more aware of their inner world and how it's operating. I'm learning from what they're getting free from, what's releasing and what's relaxing in their practice. It's suddenly like the conversation is teaching us about Nibbana, rather than the label of this is the Nibbana and kind of trying to fit it into the the textual understandings that I've studied over all the years. What would you say the differences are between those textual understandings and the way you're describing? I think it's very easy for textual understandings to fall into to something more abstract or division um, of conditioned and unconditioned. Um, pure and not, you know, and mangled. I don't know the opposite of pure. Um, <laughs> I think the direction that we've gone in in our in our community is a kind of more accessible way to get into the teaching, and it's not so focused on purity, and not so focused on looking for something radical. It's much closer to our experience and looking for little shifts, little ways that something doesn't go along the patterned experience that we're used to. So would you say that maybe 
in this in this more secular tradition, you're focusing in on a particular area, what's happening in an individual's life and experience, rather than, as you put it, textual understandings of, you know, for example, past lives, future lives, development of spiritual abilities, etc. I think that's a good way to put it, because we do at times bring in certain texts, and we do study, you know, textual suttas. Um, but I think the primacy and the practice is on the person's experience and then seeing where their experience fits into some of those texts. Or when they go to study something, they can then understand a little bit more about what was trying to be gotten um, to from the mysterious way the Buddha talks, because it's not always so clear. <laughs> and there's a lot of different translations out there, as you know, you two translators one of the things that I love is what you just mentioned about mystery. How much do you do you feel like that the mysteriousness is pulled into the practice in the way that you approach? Ah, great question. You know, I feel like conditionality has the mystery of the world in it. And that when I get little glimpses of insight or understanding or dropping away of self or an other or of seeing into impermanence, that those feel like the, the nibbana that comes from understanding bits of the mystery of conditionality. Now, you know, I don't know. I, at the same time, I want to say, like, I'm not 100% certain about all of this. This is just where my practice has led me. This is the kinds of conversations we have in our sangha, is that mystery is highly important. If if I say I know everything or anything for sure, you know, I'm really I'm skeptical about that. I don't know. There's something exciting about mystery and having things emerge and being surprised um, by life. Like, you know, I just don't know even what my next meditation sitting is going to be like. <laughs> That's, mm. you know, it, it's not the same. It's a difficult line, right? Because there is that impetus to nail everything down, to make everything static, because it helps us to feel safe. It helps us to feel knowledgeable, competent, right. all of these different things, right? And at the same time, it, too much looseness, too much like, oh, mm -hmm. just throw it out there. Also, that doesn't satisfy us. That doesn't, you know, that can get too amorphous to really be of any help. I don't know if you have any further thought on walking that, that balance, that tightrope between those. You know, I, I don't, I guess I, I really want to just talk from where I'm at, <laughs> but I don't know if I... I really lean in the direction of the unconditioned. And I think that's something that we're really questioning. And we're really questioning the kind of absolute nature that is often given to Nibbana or a kind of, you know, pure peace or pure calm or pure liberation. I think we're more in the questioning of, can the realizations I get from understanding the conditioned nature of my existence, can those lead me to greater peace, greater understanding, something that's transformative, that's beyond what I've known in my past, you know, just even as a youngster or a middle-aged person 
Now I'm an old aged person, you know, are those enough? Are those giving and um, producing something that keeps me practicing, keeps me engaged, keeps me curious, keeps me wanting to be more compassionate and kind? I'm thinking how to ask this because (laughs) it's in a different context. But one of the questions we've been asking the teachers that we talk to is how relevant is nirvana in the sense of the unconditioned to your life and to your practice? And what I'm hearing is that this approach you're using is sort of putting that to one side. Is, Is that a way to describe it? Or how would you describe its relevance in this style of practice? You know, I think I asked myself that question before the interview because because we don't use the word nibbana, I really wondered, does that mean it's not important? Does that mean I'm not teaching it? Does that mean I'm not giving it the weight that it deserves, let's say, or or that other people thinks it think it deserves? Um I feel like I hear it a lot being talked about in my community, when I talk to people, again, within their own scope of how they get free from the tangles of their life, from the suffering, Mm -hmm. from the vulnerability, um, from the dukkha. I feel like that is the, the way we're talking about it. And we're talking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. So and maybe the way we're not talking about it is in this, let's say, as a higher state. As a transcendent. Yeah. And, and yet it's, it's like, I think the experience of transcendent is that I have transcended. We have transcended some of um, the things that used to plague us. It, we're walking kind of a more, I'm trying to say, I think a middle path, kind of more in this middle, especially if something gets put to a, higher realm or a hierarchy or a purity that, again, I'm just skeptical of. I'm curious what you do. You you mentioned that you do study texts. I'm curious what you do with the content of the Buddhist teachings that are very in your face, basically, (laughs) about there being an unconditioned, a deathless state, a transcendent state more than... Yeah, a definitive transcendence as opposed to a liberation from immediate concerns and life, which is important. But in the Buddhist teachings, he definitely does express a distinction. More often than not, I put that back on the people I'm working with. So it's usually presented as either a question or uh, is this your experience? What's your direction around this? My direction is to look at uh, is more leans more towards the harm that gets set up from a kind of perfectionism or striving that is very much an everyday occurrence for many people in my sangha. I bring in other texts and say this is you know this is another angle. Where are you in this? And I try to be more honest about where I my leanings are. So that people know that, you know, I have a bias too, and I have a direction and a path too, you know, like I have both. And that some people may really connect with certain parts of our teaching and other ones they might need to go out and find more people who teach to the unconditioned, to the perfection, to the, you know, the unbounded states that other traditions offer so well. I really loved how you talked about how 
we could misunderstand transcendence as provoking or leaning into concerns about perfectionism and the like. I'm wondering what the flip side of that might be. What do you, in your experience, find any any possible advantages that might might also exist if we take the teachings of a transcendent nirvana at face value? If we take out something higher, does it leave people with not enough aspiration or nothing to to move towards? Just you know, how are you doing in your life? Type of thing and. I, I think that I see some people, I, and I would look at it as a propensity, you know, arasankara, an inclination, that some people really need that to be uplifted, to focus, to feel like one with a community about, um, and that if there's not enough talk of that, it can feel very simple or like mundane or not very interesting. I think that's where... I really want to still consider those teachings. I don't want to throw out those teachings. I want to say, I don't know some of those teachings yet. And I don't know where I fit in some of those teachings and other ones of those teachings, I'm just not that interested in. So that's that's what I'm playing with when I'm looking at how do I teach Dharma? Because Dharma to me is not just, how are you today? It's much more of like, how are you reflecting on your life? How are you looking at what pains you? What gives you joy? How are you acting within your communities? What are some of your goals? And that all of that needs to be taken into consideration in a Dharma practice. And if we leave out the problems of existence or the problems of transformation, deep transformation, I would feel bereft. Um, mm-hmm. I would feel like the depth of the Dharma is getting lost. I mean, I just, I think it's so meaningful how you just described it as that sense of looking for what is genuinely transformative and the sense of that we have to take into account what works for people, where where their state of mind is, not just like you were saying, not just in an immediate context, but in a much more global interbeing context. Well, you guys are really nice. I I know you can edit this part out. Um, (laughs) Edit out a a compliment? No. This is where, like, I feel like we are talking about something different, you two and I, in our traditions. And yet, I don't feel any lack of warmth or communication or connection about the subject matter. Mm -hmm. In fact, I probably am closer to you than I am to my family members on this topic. <laughs> I'm always struck when we look at the Buddha telling the story of his enlightenment and how he chooses to teach. His experience of enlightenment is definitely transcendent. But then when he starts to talk to people, it's about our dukkha, about rebirth and aging and illness and death and parting from what we love and not getting what we want. The Buddha's teachings on interdependence, on dependent origination, on dukkha, on the things that are a part of our life here and now, they will take us to whatever it is that he encountered. Does that sound something like what you're experiencing? It does. And this is where I think that Nibbana doesn't look one way. 
Thank you so much, my dear Dharma sister, for joining us. Please uh, check the episode notes to hear more about Linda Madaro and Sati Sangha and her practice of reflective meditation, which I know you continue to offer on a daily basis since the pandemic started. Thanks so much for being with us, Linda. You're welcome. Thank you. This was Yeshe and Zopa for Prajna Sparks. Be sure to join us every month on the new and full moons for fresh episodes. Our Why Nirvana Matters series continues until the end of the year. Shivni is our Tibetan singing bowl artist. We can't thank you enough for taking the time right now to like, follow, share, and review Prajna Sparks. It means a lot to us, and it means a lot to all the folks who haven't found us yet. If you have any questions, contact us via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks. Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit. <laughs>